of you don't know me, my name is Lindsay, so you can call me that because that's the name my mother gave me. Um, unless we happen to be in a place like a, that overrated place, Starbucks, and ask her for your name, you know, then my name is Douglas, because they always get my name wrong. And they ask me, how do you spell that? It is D-U-G-L-E-S-S. So you can call me Lindsay, except of course if you're one of my children, because in the home it is His Royal Highness Lindsay Rinquist the first. <laughs> no, Nicky. <Nikki. laughs> yes, so um, thank you, Bevan, um, and to you, the evening congregation, for giving me this opportunity of sharing God's word with you. Um, and I must say that, you know, when I think about the topic I'm going to be sharing on tonight, um, you probably, when I'm going to be announcing it, um, are going to maybe find yourself a little bit intimidated by it. I must admit, I myself am intimidated by it. Um, but nevertheless, I feel constrained, if you want to use that word, um, to share on this topic with you tonight. And, and I hope, you know, this is a, it's a big topic. It's a massive topic. I don't have enough time to cover it, I think, adequately. But maybe just to share... Um, an aspect that I think um, would be relevant to all of us seated here tonight. Um, and that topic is the topic of prophecy. <laughs> you know, I guess it is intimidating because when we think about the topic of prophecy, you know, we think naturally it's about being able to predict the future. And I must admit, you know, there are certain things in life I would really like to be able to predict. You know, like that great battle that's going to be taking place. Maybe it has started just over the ocean, you know, when you have two teams fighting it out in red. And all I know is that there's probably only one team in red, and I hope it's the right color red that's going to be winning. <laughs> yeah, so, so when we think about prophecy, you know, we naturally go to that idea of, you know, it's about predicting the future. Um, you know, so when I was growing up um, as a teenager, um, I read quite a lot. I enjoyed being in the library. And, you know, um, and this was in the 1980s. And, you know, there was stuff happening in South Africa, in the community. And I heard about this, the name of this guy by the name of Michel de Nostradamus. You know, otherwise just known as Nostradamus. You know, because they said that Nostradamus has got this ability to be able to predict the future. In fact, they said, you know, he lived in the 1500s. He was able to, pre to predict a lot of stuff that was happening in the future. So this intrigued me, and I thought, you know, I'd grown up in the church. I'd heard about the prophets, especially in the Bible, you know, these um, interesting individuals. I wanted to know more about it, so I started reading this book, and I discovered that it was a very difficult book to read because um, I read the English version. It was originally written in French. I don't know French. Um, I don't know English. And, you know, so when I was reading it, I discovered that, you know, Nostradamus wrote in rhymes, and very vague rhymes, you know, it was almost like the book of Revelation, you know. And, you know, depending on how you read it, it could be interpreted, you know, to mean a lot of stuff, you know, and maybe, maybe he got it right, maybe he got it wrong, you know. Then I also heard that there was a South African um, that was present during the so-called Anglo-Boer War. They called him Sinner van Rensburg. Now, Sinner is just the Afrikaans word that means a seer, uh, somebody who's able to predict the future. 
uh, I think family of the Janser van Rensburgs, because his surname was Janser van Rensburg. Yeah. And, and he, he, you know, kind of was on the side of the Boers, <laughs> and he was predicting, you know, I think things, you know, it was favorable to what was then known as the Transvaal Republic, you know, so there was Sinner van Rensburg, you know. But both of them, you know, in terms of what they said and what they predicted, you know, um, their prophecies was mysterious. You know, it was very enigmatic, as we say, as far as the predictions was concerned. But you see, I think my concern for tonight is to help us to understand what's the challenge of biblical prophecy. Um, because you see, to truly understand prophecy, especially in the Bible, we actually have to take into account the full biblical witness when it comes to how the Bible describes and how the Bible unfolds the, um, the idea of prophecy. So that when we come into the New Testament, because the New Testament speaks about the gift of prophecy, and I believe in the gift of prophecy, it's important to understand that while the New Testament did use a Greek word that in the secular language meant soothsaying, being able to predict the future, and sometimes even to cast spells, Biblical prophecy is more than just that. Um, and so biblical prophecy and the gift of prophecy mustn't just be reduced to the idea of being able to know the future, to foresee the future, and to be able to predict it accurately. Now, let me say this, biblical prophecy does involve the future. <laughs> you know, we cannot deny that. Um, and so the gift of prophecy does also involve that. However... When one takes a look at the evidence of prophecy throughout the Bible, you know, we discover it's actually a more complicated story than just that aspect that the Greeks looked at and that the Greeks understood. You know, you would go to the prophet in order to understand the future or to predict the future. Um, biblical prophecy and biblical prophets, including the gift of prophecy, is about speakers, sometimes preachers. Now, now, the gift of prophecy is not preaching, per se. You know, biblical preaching can be prophetic, but it's not always prophetic. Um, it's, it's about this idea that there is an authoritative proclamation. Moved by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes upon a person, and they are able to say, thus says the Lord. So that when they say something, as thus says the Lord, they bring this, what we call a divine communication that has got a meaning for the audience who is listening to that communication. And let me say, sometimes it did involve the future. But when we take a look at the, the sum total of the prophecies spoken in the Bible, then you will discover that the future dimension of many of these prophecies was only about 20% of the time. That, the, that, that prophecy was about the future. And even that 20% was a future that was relevant for the listeners of the day. You know, many of the prophets predicted, like the Old Testament prophets, the exile. You know, the fact that God was going to be punishing his children because they were disobedient, because they did not want to listen, because they did not want to obey the law, um, God would be sending an invading army to come their way and to punish them. So many of the prophets spoke about judgment that God brought them to, to speak judgment again, against God's people, to speak against their disobedience. And within that context, they would often refer to the future, either the immediate future, sometimes the distant future when it comes to what we call messianic prophecy. You see, and, and, and that is what a lot of those prophecies were about. So some of the prophecies that they spoke 
was in their future but is in our past. Yet, there are some of these prophecies that are predictive prophecies that still has to be fulfilled. You know, we call them end-time prophecies, the last-day prophecies. So, the prophet Joel, that is um, quoted on the day of Pentecost, says the following, amongst other things, your sons and daughters will prophesy. And I see many sons and daughters seated here tonight. And my hope is that as I share a dimension of prophecy that I believe is often neglected and that I believe is important, that even if God, through his grace, has not given you or might not be giving you the gift of prophecy, there is a sense in which all of us can prophesy if we understand the full picture as to what prophecy is all about. So, so we need to have what I want to suggest is this kind of balanced biblical view as to what prophecy is all about. Um, so that, you know, if the Lord does bless more at PBC with the gift of prophecy, we can celebrate them, but also understand, you know, that it's not just about them, but we also have a role to play in this. So, before I get to the passage, you know, and the passage I want to focus on, you know, is not your kind of traditional passage that deals with prophecy. You know, it's a prophetic book, and it involves an aspect of prophecy that I want to share with us tonight that I hope is going to be challenging you. But, you know, a little bit more about the background, you know, so that you can just keep things in perspective, hopefully. There's lots I can share, I want to share, because I've made this a a part of my own study for for a number of years. So, you know, I'm going to be missing out a lot of things, but, you know, there are some important things that I hope I can share with you tonight so that as you think about it and as you contemplate it and as I believe the Holy Spirit might, you know, contend with you, you know, to consider, you know, your role as a prophet, you know, then maybe some of this might come to your remembrance. So there are two words that we normally use, you know, to try and highlight um, the dimensions of prophecy. You know, the one I've spoken about, it's the idea of being a foreteller, to be able to predict the future. Now, now, even there, you know, the Bible has got certain passages that tells us to be very, very careful. You know, in the context of the New Testament, you know, the Bible says, the Apostle Paul says, we need to have discernment, you know, when, when prophetic words are being, are being uttered. But within the Old Testament, you know, in the history of the Old Testament, there are certain passages which places constraints as to what our understanding of prophecy should be all about. You know, so that even when it comes to foretelling, we need to be very careful about the biblical cautions when it comes to prophecy. One of the most important passages in the Old Testament that lays down the, the, the guidelines and the constraints for prophecy is Deuteronomy chapter 18. And in that passage, Moses is actually set up as the paradigm, um, the prototype for, for prophecy. Um, and later on in the Bible, we are told in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 9, and in Hebrews chapter 1, you know, that, that prophecy played a specific role within the salvation history of the Bible. You know, so that the emphasis shifted away from, from prophecy being primarily predictive, not that, it, that, that, that there wasn't prediction, and that there cannot be prediction. Because look, I don't believe in a closed universe. I don't believe in a God, you know, that, that, that cannot Um, do the miraculous today, and allow somebody the opportunity to be able to predict something specifically, you know. I'm not at all denying that. 
Um, but you see, even that has to fall biblically within the constraints that the Bible sets up. So, so the Bible, for example, says, you know, we need to be careful about false prophets. And sometimes those who were true prophets became false prophets because the Bible says that if they prophesy presumptuously, in other words, they say something that is not true or they predict something that's not going to be happening, Deuteronomy chapter 13 says, well, then such a person you need to publicly get rid of, you stone them to death. <laughs> so, so being a prophet was risky business. <laughs> But do you know who was the first person? Because this is the direction in which I'm wanting to go. You know, for, for us to understand a dimension of prophecy that I believe is very important for us to understand. The very first person in the Bible that is described as a prophet is Abraham. You know, you read Genesis chapter 20, you will see that. In the New Testament, the New Testament says Enoch was a prophet. You know, looking back. In fact, the Quran, now the Quran is not inspired, you know, it's the book of another group of people. Um, they see Adam as the first prophet, amazingly. So, so that tells us that there's, there's something about being a prophet that maybe we might be missing, you know, in order to get the full picture as to what it means to be a prophet. So I say to you, Moses then in Deuteronomy chapter 18 is set up as the prototype for what it means to be a prophet. He sets the standard, and he is the standard by which every other prophet should be judged. So what did the prophet do? Well, the prophet spoke on behalf of God, called people to follow God's word. Second Chronicles chapter 24, verse 19 says that they would often utter warnings of divine judgments, and sometimes they would foretell future events. They foretold the exile, they foretold, they foretold the coming of the Messiah, and they were also true and false prophets. God called a number of different people to be prophets, besides the ones that I have just mentioned. Now, now we know those people in the Bible that are called prophets um, for whom we have books in the Bible. You know, so, so we think, you know, and we, and we sometimes divide the prophets into two categories. You know, they are called, they are the major prophets. There are three of them. We know who they are. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. You know, and they are simply called major prophets because their prophecies are long. <laughs> Doesn't mean that they were more important. I think, you know, the fact that God spoke through them such a lot, you know, means that, you know, we must pay, pay attention over there. But then there were 12 others, the minor prophets, you know, because they were shorter prophets, prophecies. But there were other individual prophets, you know, when I mean, we know of Elijah and Elisha, you know, that, that performed great um, 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 miracles, you know, I mean, God worked um, amazing things through them. And, and they were part of, you know, this very strange group, you know, called the school or the company of the prophets, you know. So, so they, hung out with, they hung out with them. But God would often call individuals. Sometimes they would be what we might call a career prophet, but many times they were not. You know, one of the prophets, Amos, you know, um, who himself said, look, I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but was called to be a prophet, you know, just simply had to leave his job for a short while, had to take a break. You know, he was a farmer. He describes himself as a cattle rancher and a piercer of sycamore figs. And God says to him, now, now Amos, you must go and take a break, go on a holiday, but you're going to go up to Bethel and you're going to go and preach a sermon there against them and warn them about the judgment I'm going to be bringing on that place of worship. 
And that's what Amos did. And when he completed his task, he left and he went back to being a farmer. The <laughs> yeah. um, border, a woman who was, who was a prophet. However, there are other individuals that God used their entire life to be a prophet, like Jeremiah. You know, Jeremiah tried to run away from being a prophet. You know, and he attempted on a number of occasions and he wasn't successful. Um, and when he tried that, he says, the word of God is burning within me like fire in my bones. But you know, what intrigues me about people like this, you know, um, um, lifetime prophets, you know, like, like Isaiah, who was actually a scribe. Um, a, he was a scribe to the king, a royal historiographer, they call it. You know. In ancient times, that was the person who was in charge of the social media of the king. Now you understand what Isaiah did. But, you know, I'm intrigued that these prophets, they did not only speak, they also enacted prophecy. And that's where I want to go this evening, especially when I do eventually come to the passage of Scripture. <laughs> don't worry, it's there. My Bible is open. So, unfortunately, I don't have a PowerPoint tonight. I just have to make the point, and hopefully the power will be provided. <laughs> using old technology, and I'm using a printed Bible you know, goodness gracious. <laughs> so I'm intrigued, you know, by what we call prophetic actions, symbolic actions. Now, some of these prophets did some really, really strange things in order to communicate God's word. For example, God said to Jeremiah one day, Jeremiah, take your loincloth. Now, that's just a nice biblical word for underpants. And I want you to take your loincloth and you can bury it next door to the, to the river. And I want you to leave it there. And then you do what people say you mustn't do. You air your dirty laundry in public. You know, because, you know, Jeremiah bought his loincloth at a very famous shop there in Jerusalem called Jeremiah's Secret. <laughs> and then it wasn't such a secret because he walked, he had to walk around in the marketplace and say, this is what God is going to be doing to you prophetic action. Now, I don't recommend if you feel that you are upset about the high price of parking at Howard Center that you share your secrets out there. Now, that, that's not what we are saying. You know, the point is, in order to make an impact, the Old Testament prophets often had to engage in symbolic actions. So, prophecy involves foretelling most of the times it involved, here's a word we invented in theology, forthtelling. <laughs> in other words, to communicate an inspired message from God to God's people. And so that is what the prophet had to engage in, inspired speech. But here comes the third dimension that I think we often neglect, especially given um, the examples that I've used and the passage that I'm going to be reading to you very shortly. And that is from being not just a foreteller or forth-teller, but the third dimension of prophecy that I think the sons and the daughters sitting here tonight, that I hope that this message might inspire you to be, is to be a, this is my invented word, a faith liver. Not the liver, you know, the faith liver, to live out your faith. So, so if I were to give this message a title, now, I'm sorry it's going to sound a bit corny, but, but this is my, my title that I feel I want to share with you tonight. 
Love prophetically in 2023. Love prophetically in 2023. Now we're going to do that. So I invite you to follow the passage. We're going to go to that other Old Testament prophet um, that is not listed as a major prophet in the Hebrew Bible, is listed as a major prophet in our Christian Bible, but because this prophecy came into the Bible as inspired, very later compared to the others, you know, he's listed differently over there, but also he represents a different phase in Old Testament prophecy, and that's the prophet Daniel. You know, it's a very symbolic prophecy in certain places, you know, very strange, it's almost like Nostradamus, However, it is in the story part of the prophecy, you know, because the book is prophecy. And just by the way, you know, what we call historical books, the Jews called Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, they call that former prophets. So, so they think about that era of history very differently to what we do. Because for them, the way in which you live also entails prophecy. So, you know the story of Daniel, um, this guy that gets um, taken up in the exile, that some of the, what we call the prophets before the exile, the pre-exilic prophets preached, and so he ends up there. And Daniel, with his three friends, you know, so they're like D'Artagnan and the three musketeers, you know, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's, the, it's their story. And how their story in Daniel chapter 3 for me, is an illustration as to what it means and a challenge as to what it means to live prophetically. Now, the story actually begins a little bit earlier. Um, so I'm going to be reading, I'm making a few comments, and I'm going to be sharing what I think are some of the principles that this passage presents to us in terms of how we can live prophetically. So, so let's maybe start in um, Daniel chapter 2, verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, fell down, paid homage to Daniel, you know, because Daniel had this ability to be able to interpret dreams, you know, and so none of the other prophets of the day could do it, but Daniel could do it. And gave orders to present an offering and incense to him. The king said to Daniel, your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of lords. And in fact, just by the way, those were the kinds of titles that the Syrian and Babylonian kings, they would love to use. So you understand what the New Testament means when it says Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, setting Jesus above these kings that were kings over these great empires. The king said to Daniel, your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of lords, and a revealer of mysteries, since you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many generous gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon, which now wise men, another word they use to describe prophets. At Daniel's request, the king appointed the three musketeers, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to manage the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained in the king's court. Now the plot thickens. The story we know fairly well. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue. 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, 27 meters high, 2.5 meters wide. Probably made out of wood, but it is very clear that it was covered in gold. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word 
to assemble. Now there's a list of people. This was basically his cabinet. The people had made up his parliament. Satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the cabinet, the satraps, the prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. They stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. A herald, a proclaimer, loudly proclaimed, people of every nation and language, you are commanded. When you hear the sound of, now this is his worship team, the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, rock music, rap music, you, know, they, you need to fall down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound, when the worship band struck up, the horn, the flute, zither, lyre, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and we know that the three musketeers didn't do that. I think that illustrates, as we take a look at this passage and we read on a little further, that what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, which I believe is a prophetic action that is required in the day and the age in which we are living in, is to be willing to live prophetically and to act prophetically by standing up when everyone else is bowing down. Being willing to stand up when everyone else is bowing down. This, this was a compelling thing that King Nebuchadnezzar did, despite what they had said to, to Daniel just earlier in the chapter when they acknowledged God. Now he requires the three musketeers to break the Ten Commandments, especially the greatest of the Ten Commandments, that they must only worship God. So he set up this massive statue, you know, and the Babylonians, they were, they were incredible people. You know, I've seen some of their work as I travel and as I go to some of the museums because I like to see, you know, what the Babylonians and the Syrians did, you know. Um, and what some of the things they did were really, really impressive. And it was always huge. I've not seen this golden statue, obviously, you know. But I've seen some of the other impressive work. And they were doing this in order to force people to worship a foreign god. Now, now we're not maybe pressured to follow golden images, you know, but we have a more powerful image. Oh, yeah. Um, sorry. Yeah, you know. Um, there is pressure that we face today in society that while it's not a matter of bowing down to golden images that are standing up, you know, we just name them other things. You know, iPhone, <laughs> Samsung, <laughs> you know, and all those other funny names, you know, that, that we have. And, and we feel that we have to bow down, you know, and we have to worship at its feet. As my wife says, I sometimes do. Because I'm playing games to try and relieve my stress, I say. <laughs> but you know, the pressure is out there today. You know, and everybody 
is often going to do that. When the, when the challenge is there and they say, bow down, are we going to be willing like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of your worship band, the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the golden statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There were some Jews you had appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now you must understand the very fact that the Bible names them here, those names, these were Babylonian names. You know, what, what the king had done was to try and take away their Jewish identity. You know, their Jewish names had names that reflected something of the character of God and reflected something of their responsibilities before God. You know, the true God. Now King Nebuchadnezzar comes and he names them names that reflects his gods. So he was trying to take away their identity. So it's fine. That's how the names are recorded. But there was no way they were going to behave in the way in which he expected. So these men have ignored you, they said to the king, and they do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. And I think this next verse, you know, if King Nebuchadnezzar was a cartoon character, the steam would have been coming out of his ears. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and, Abed and Abednego. I almost said, and to bed we go. No, it's not. The bed we go. Um, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the worship team playing, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego responds in the second way, I believe, is important for us to consider how to live and act um, prophetically. Not just by doing it, by standing up, but also by standing out. So Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. You know, I mean, this is really what prophecy is about. You know, when you speak to power with the boldness that God gives you, if the God we serve exists, and they believe he existed, but listen to this faith, he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden statue you set up. What boldness that they were willing in the face of this clear and present danger to say, we are willing to stand out. You know, this pressure is there not. You know, not only to worship certain idols, but also to behave in a certain way. 
You know, we have to listen to certain music, we have to go to certain places, we have to dress a particular way, you know, we have to have certain kind of tattoos and we, you know, have to um, do the kinds of things. You know, I remember when I was growing up, you know, it was very strict, you know, and it wasn't necessarily the best thing to do, you know. But, you know, it was for the era in which I was growing up, you know, it was sometimes necessary. You know, you weren't allowed to go to the cinema. You know, you couldn't go and hang out in a place where people were drinking beer <laughs> and stuff like that, you know, because you had to be different. Because if you were there, you would be associated, you know, as sitting amongst the, the scoffers, you know. Now, I'm not saying we, we can't do that, we mustn't do that, because that's not inherently sinful. I don't believe that. But, you know, sometimes there is a peer pressure that comes there. Come, you know. <laughs> It's okay, you know, let's just have one, let's just do this, let's just do that. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he gave orders that the heat of the furnace be seven times more than what was customary. Now, the Babylonians were great at technology. I told you how big they made things. Um, it is clear from this passage that there was some kind of kiln that the Babylonians had built. You know, Bab the Babylonians were good at two kinds of kilns. One to smelt metal, they were actually fairly small, and then they had brick kilns. Some of these have been excavated. Some of them were as big as train tunnels. They were massive, you know. And they, they did it to fire bricks, you know. So if you go and Google what the ancient city of Babylon looked like, you know, you can see just how amazing they were. They covered the entire walls of Babylon with ceramic tiles that they themselves fired in furnaces like this one. So this furnace wasn't built specifically for them. It just happened to be close by, you know. Um, and these furnaces would normally, in order to be able to um, fire bricks and to make ceramic tiles, would be fired anywhere between 1,000 degrees Celsius and 1,300 degrees Celsius. When they cremate a body, they aim for 1,400 to 1,500 degrees Celsius. So they wanted to make it seven times hotter. We need to get rid of these guys. You know, they are the nuisance. How dare they want to not only stand up, but stand out. And he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men, in their trousers, robes, head coverings, um, and other clothes, were tied up and thrown into the furnace. Since sin King Nebuchadnezzar's command was so urgent, the furnace was so extremely hot, the raging flames killed those around Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm and said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Something strange is happening here. Am I seeing things? Let's make a TikTok about this. Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see four men, not tied, walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Something amazing happening here. Happening here. You see, not only were they willing to stand out, Stand up, stand out, they were willing to stand firm. And I think that's the third part of what it means to act prophetically, to stand firm. They were 
willing to say, we are going to stand here and we're going to show a courage without any kind of compromise. And even if the Lord was not going to carry them through that furnace, they were still going to do this. Now the Lord did deliver them, and he did it for the benefit of Nebuchadnezzar and everyone else. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace, the blazing fire, and called out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out when the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around them. Listen to this. They saw the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair on their heads was singed. Their robes were unaffected, and there was no smell of fire on them. Amazing. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, praise the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than to serve or worship any other God except their own God. Therefore, I issue a decree, said King Nebuchadnezzar, that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and from, and his house made a garbage dump. For, these, for there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. Then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. How do we live prophetically in 2023? By being willing to stand up, to stand out, and to stand firm.